You're listening to Voice Acting Mastery, episode number 133. Welcome to the Voice Acting Mastery podcast with Crispin Freeman. VoiceActingMastery.com is your place to learn both the skills and the mindset you need to become a professional voice actor, even if you're just getting started. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover valuable tips, tricks, and insider information to help you portray characters in animation, video games, and beyond. And now here's your host, voice actor Crispin Freeman. Hi there. My name is Crispin Freeman, and I'll be your guide through the world of voice acting. If you'd like to know more about me, feel free to check out my personal website at www.crispinfreeman.com. Welcome to the third and final part of my interview with voice actor and dialect expert, Eliza Jane Schneider. You may be familiar with her work voicing all the female characters on the animated series South Park in the years between 1999 and 2003. Eliza and I have also been in a number of projects together, including Diablo 3, where I played the male wizard and she played the female necromancer, and also the Pirates of the Caribbean video games, where I voice match Orlando Bloom to play Will Turner, while she voice matches Kira Knightley to play Elizabeth Swan. In addition to her many acting accomplishments, Eliza is incredibly dedicated to the study and mastery of English language dialects. She is a highly sought-after accent coach, and I'm very happy to have her on the podcast to share her insight and expertise with all my listeners. In the previous episode, Eliza explained the unique techniques she has developed to master dialects and accents. As we wrap up our time together, Eliza talks about how to approach mastering the emotional component of performing with an accent. She also shares her tongue placement system to help dial in the specific sound of certain vowel substitutions. We end the interview with Eliza's advice to aspiring voice actors, which includes the reality of how little time voiceover performers actually have to give a believable and compelling performance once they're in the booth. It's a sobering but honest take on the challenges of working in the voiceover industry. I think you'll find Eliza's candor and expertise very helpful. So let's get started. And now, the feature segment. You, you were talking about all the technical stuff that needs to be done, but there's also, you said, finding somebody's voice, almost their emotional voice, mm -hmm. right? So how, how do you teach that? Well, that's the thing is you don't teach it. You just... You just make sure that you're, um, you make sure that you take care of all the technical step stuff in a separate step from taking care of the experiential. So we set up our, you know, software, we set up our tracks, we do all the technical looping, we grab our samples, we get that all set up, and then we let go of everything, put on our headphones and just fly. You know, just listen back and imitate, listen back and imitate and just stop thinking entirely. Mm -hmm. So so that's how you get into channeling mode. Or another way to do it is to put that mask on that you were describing. Only I like to do it with um, taking your uh, left hand and drawing, sort of sculpting an imaginary mask of this person's face in the hand and then placing that on your own face and fitting your face into that oh. in your imagination, you know, and then then doing this, you know, there are all kinds of ways to get into your experiential head sensorily. You know, we know that from, from sense memory and method acting. 
Um, but, but making sure that you completely isolate these processes, you know, that you have your technical process of setting up your session, then you have your experiential process of the mimicry and the channeling, and that opens you up as an actor. Gotcha. And then you find that you're being, you're, you're, with all of this repetition and practice and, and turning off your brain, that you're starting to think more like the character. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then you step back from it and get technical again, but you, you don't do them at the same time. That, that, I would say, is the biggest mistake that actors make in doing dialects and accents. Is they, first of all, they don't score their copy. So in my in my system, we have a three prong system it starts with this auditory looping method and that that eliminates 75 percent of, of errors pretty much. Um, <laughs> then we go into uh, the visual part where I have them print out their copy, whether they're applying the dialect to a new script or whether we're still dealing with our springboards size 20 font double spaced. And then we either whatever they're they prefer, we take some sort of method of transcription, which is the musical notes. We, we create our sheet music after we've learned the stuff by ear. And that's what we do in the Suzuki method of learning a new instrument. Uh, you know, you, you do the immersion and then ultimately you do look at the, the music mm-hmm. to learn the song. Um, so scoring your material is really important, especially for when you're not memorizing, when you're doing voiceover work, because having those musical notes up on your stand frees you up to be able to be in your actor's mind and just read, you know. That is so true. It's one of the challenges I've been facing with the fact that we now have all of our scripts on iPads and we can't write on them. Um, On the screen. Yeah. And I'm a digital guy. I usually like things digital. I I don't always care for paper that much. But there is this thing that I noticed when somebody would give me a note, like we need to change a line that I needed to say. They could tell me and I could understand and I could know what the change needed to be. But you're right that my brain was both the technical and the emotional was still trying to work at the same time. They both had their hands on the wheel and it, and it caused things to be jerky. Whereas if I just took the time to say, OK, how do you want the line different? And I would just write those words on the page. Mm-hmm. It was like it got my technical brain went, I see what the words are now. And now I can forget about that and I can go back to acting. And I didn't have to try to remember the line differently right. because it's there in front of me. Even if I just scribbled it badly, somehow it gave my brain permission to now play pretend with this new line without having to like stress to remember it. it yeah. And I mean, it's it's audition technique 101, even for on camera. You you go in with the sides in your hand. Right. You know, so that you don't, you're not putting that pressure on yourself to remember the words as opposed to act the scene. Yeah. Wow. That's... And and so with the, the scoring, there's three different methods we use. We use respelling, which Robert Easton and I used to call half respelling, spelled H-A-L-F-F-A-S-T. <laughs> okay. half respelling. So, so what you do is you take rhyming words. Like, for example, one of my favorite examples is uh, you take the word settled for a Scottish pronunciation of the word world, and you replace the S with a W. So say settled. Settled. Replace the S with a W and say that word. Weddled. Exactly. What in the world are you talking about? <laughs> what in the world? Oh, okay, got it. Weddled, See? settled. All right, there you go. Very so that's, clever. So that's half three spelling. That's where you take rhyming words from your own little arsenal of your own reference uh-huh. And you, you ignore the IPA because it pisses you off or you don't like symbols or it, it scared you in college. 
Um, I mean, for me, the IPA, there is a single symbol for every spoken sound, yep. which is far less confounding than, you know, the alphabet. Mm-hmm. You know, where there's 27 different words to spell the sound A, like E-A-D-I-G-H, as in shillelagh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no. English spelling is ridiculous, and I think is daunting to anyone who's trying to learn it as a second language. They're like, "What are you talking? How does well?" And that's why work? I focus on the IPA a great deal when I'm when I'm teaching accent reduction. But um, but the map of the mouth is the third thing that I developed, and it's 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 I have this vowelopotamus with a very big mouth, um, and I put a grid w- which with a basic. X, Y axis in it. And it has A through E across the top and one through nine or one through 10 along the side. Hmm. So you basically have 10 gradations of your tongue distance from the roof of your mouth. And you have five gradations of the part of the tongue that is approaching said roof of said mouth. Ah, right? Okay. So your tongue becomes the line on a line graph. Ah, interesting. How Cartesian of you. Well done. <laughs> I thank you. Um, yes. Wow. Okay. So that's the kinesthetic part of the whole equation. Yeah. And so so I have students who write on their copy in those spaces in between the lines where they've printed it out, size 20 font, double spaced. Um, and I have them writing E7 for the uh sound, you know, or for oh. the ah. Sorry, E7 would be aw. So, uh, so like, you know, I don't know, A1 would be E. Sure. And and E one would be ooh. It's like chess maneuvers. I love it. Yeah, and that's where you get the cracks between the piano keys that occur within general American English. That you know, for example, the Russian e sound and the Italian and and Latin e sound is halfway between our e as in tree and our i as in pit. Oh. So there's a phonetic symbol that represents that. But if you're trying to spell it. It's really hard to do. So yeah. if you if you have A2 and you're saying A1 is E and A3 is E, then A2 is going to be this E sound. In between. Wow. It's like it's like microtones. Right. I love that notion of the cracks between the piano. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you need to be able to play things that are bet- that are quarter steps or, yeah. or microtones. And, and stuff that your ear is not accustomed to hearing and your mouth is not accustomed to saying. So then you can, you know, say he beats his dog because it beat him. And you can know that this is a merged sound. Wow. Fascinating. Wow. That's really great, Eliza. Well, I really appreciate all the stuff you've been sharing with us. Um, before we sign off, is there any um, advice that you would give to aspiring voice actors? Take an acting class. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of acting class? Any kind. Yeah. Any kind. Just get in class. Just, you know, I mean, it, it depends. Is it an inspire, aspiring voice actor who has already studied acting? Or is it somebody who just does voices and wants to get into voiceover? If it's the latter, take an acting class. Um, an experiential, hands-on, in-the-room-with-other-actors, live acting class. Um improv and why is that study. so important i mean some people would say well eliza you don't even live in los angeles anymore you're able to record from a distance and i think that's the fantasy that a lot of people have that they'll get a Do microphone you have any idea how many acting classes i've taken <laughs> they don't they don't that's what that's what's so important for them to hear is that often i think people especially in this sort of 
click have mentality that uh, right. Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook have given us, that there is this notion that, oh, I've got the microphone and I've got some blankets I put up in my closet and I'm talking into it. How come no one will pay me? Um, yeah. and, and, and this notion that acting is a craft like learning an instrument, that it takes the same kind of practice and dedication to be able to act believably as it does to be able to play a concerto. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think often that that's that's lost. And, and so it's it's really nice to hear from people um, like yourself who are obviously driven and accomplished um, what what advice you would give to aspiring actors or what advice you would have given to your younger self uh, about how to pursue a performing career. Well, the, the advice I would have given to my younger self is um, stop being such a snob and don't be afraid of networking and schmoozing and, you know, go to the parties, meet the people, treat everybody the same. You know, don't be afraid of meeting casting directors and sending out postcards because you think that you're marketing and you think that that's like cheesy or 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 lame or whatever you know just Mm. do do all that networking and 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 don't think of it as networking think of it as going out and meeting cool people and and take an interest in other people and what they're doing and make it about them and not about you that's what i would tell my younger self sure and do you think that that snobbiness was a sort of a notion of yourself as an artist who didn't do that sort of thing is that yes (laughs) There was that. There was that. But there was also this sort of, you know, my parents were hippies. So there was this aversion to marketing and there was an aversion to, uh, you know, thinking about money and this kind of ingrained idea that all rich people are assholes, which makes it very difficult to make money. But I think people are getting (laughs) out of that since the 80s. But um, but, you know, I I I think that I, I if I had maintained contact with half of the people I met, you know, or, you know, gone out and tried to uh, accepted invitations and gone out and, and engaged, you know, there's a lot of things available for actors now that I would have snubbed back in the day that are like VO mastery coming up with the, with uh, Randy Thomas. Um, There's a big event. I'm not even Uh, sure what that is. uh, Oh, VO Mastery. Randy Thomas. I mean, I don't know when this is going to air, but it's uh, October 27th and 28th. And it's called VO Mastery. And Randy has invited, you know, Mark Cashman and Debbie Derryberry and me and a bunch of other people to help people out in Los Angeles. And it's it's you could go you can find it at VO Mastery dot com. Is it a convention or uh, it's like a conference? A conference. Yeah, or... And there are master classes you can take and ah. um, a lot of networking. Opportunities. And I never used to do those things. Sure. Because I, I turned my nose up at them and I, I thought I thought that was me being schmoozy. Mm, yes, yes. The judgment about networking and marketing and or or I just assumed that was, you know, people trying to scam money off of, you know, newcomers, you know, but you do need as a newcomer to invest some money in meeting people and developing your craft. And that's just the long and short of it. Yeah. Well, and what I also love is that um, I think often what I am approached by is students who think there is a recipe. Right. Here's the formula. You follow these steps and you become an actor. And what I'm always trying to impart to them, and hopefully they've been able to glean this from listening to your experiences, is that often the methods that we may use as actors, that we may teach to others, are ones that we developed under fire. Right. Like you developed this whole process with the Roland and the 14 repeated clips and everything else because there was there was a result you were trying to go for. 
And you were basically trying to be as resourceful as possible to say, okay, this is the result I want. How the hell do I get it? Is there a process I can come up with to help me get the result I want? Rather mm-hmm. than saying, somebody tell me the recipe, somebody tell me the formula and that'll solve mm-hmm. it. There, mm-hmm. there, there, was a, there was a creativity in the way that you were teaching yourself. And right. I found that myself when I'm trying to learn things. I mean, I, I teach a lot of people how to do ADR work, especially for anime. And they think, oh, well, did you go to school for this? No, I, I got thrown into the deep end of the pool, but because I cared about it. I think that's the other thing that I, I want to touch on, too. The notion of you caring so much about people being heard, about certain stories or messages being heard by audience, by, by people, and that, that, that you said that you're not even sure if you're that good an actor. It's just that you care so much about certain things that you can't help but mm-hmm. have them do stuff. And, and I think that sort of enthusiasm, dare we say obsession, um, <laughs> with, with things like that, I, I think you find that in anyone who's extremely successful, especially in the world of entertainment. I mean, people often think, oh, it's these people with these big egos. No! The people who actually <laughs> are Jedi, who can just do amazing things as performers, whether they're voice actors or on camera or anything, they tend to just be so obsessed with the work and trying to figure out whatever it's going to take to get the work. Like, I, I believe it was Ben Kingsley was doing a villain in some animated film. I can't even remember what it is now. But he couldn't get the resonance he wanted. And so he said, well, bring me in a chaise lounge. And he would recline on the chaise lounge and they put the microphone up to him as he's lying down. And that's how he got the effect he wanted. Oh yeah, and you're like, that's see, great story. that's that's the sort of resourcefulness mm-hmm. that any successful performer in Hollywood usually has to have. Um, right. And so I hope my listeners are really uh, taking inspiration from your journey and the fact that you were told, well, you're going to have to write, direct and produce that play. You're like, bring it on. You know, let, <laughs> let's go for it. Um, you know, your friend says, you must replace these voices in South Park. And you're like, how am I going to do this? Well, using the tools <laughs> I have in front of me, there's got to be a way, right? There's got to right. be a solution to make this work. And then later people think, oh, my God, it's this, you know, it's the Eliza Jane Schneider technique. Well, yes, it is. But it's not because <laughs> you went to a school for it. It's it's an amalgamation of your experiences, of, of what you learned from Robert Easton, and being put in the crucible of having to to deliver results yeah. and going, okay, how do I accomplish this? Yeah. And I mean, extremely short notice, too. I mean, that was, that was the one thing that was undeniable about the difference, about about the value of what I had to impart in Singapore at the VASTA Voice and Speech Teachers Association Conference with all those other professors and what they had to impart, which was, you know, we really don't have the luxury of time ever. Mm-hmm. You know, you have an audition tomorrow or, you know, even if you're at the very beginnings of this stuff and you're, you know, going through Voice Bunny, within 10 minutes, the good stuff is getting hundreds of submissions yeah you know and and you have to be able to pull this stuff out of your ass and so <laughs> i have these things stuck in my head you know i i stick springboards in my students heads so that when they are asked in a session do you know they're either asked oh can you do south african and then they have to think of what to do uh-huh. or they're asked oh we don't know what we want for this character what do you have that's when these springboards become imperative. And I really can't think of any better way than to think of it like a bunch of music that's stuck in your head that you get to choose from. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. You have you have this sort of uh, roster of stock characters at your beck and call in a moment that yeah. you can uh, trot out um, and maybe tailor their costume one way or another depending on the exactly. situation. Um, as opposed and, to the common yeah. idea, which is you rehearse a play for weeks and weeks. No, we don't have time for that. No. <laughs> No, wouldn't that be lovely, though? Yeah, wouldn't that be lovely? Yeah, that's why I, I like to call voice actors sort of the short order cooks of the acting world. You know, right? we're given a loaf of bread, some milk, eggs, and say, "Quick, make breakfast for twenty. And you're like, "Ah, I gotta whip something up." Um, right. So, but I mean, honestly, any any on camera or any any film or or whether it's voiceover or not, any film or television discipline, the auditions come up on short notice like that. It's true. You know, so you do have to have that. So hence, hence the advantage of your saying, if you stick with the program for 12 months, you'll have 12 rock solid accents that are never going away. It's not like a muscle that atrophies. It's, it's, you've learned to ride the bike and all you need is that if your springboard is solid, it will pull you uh, auditorially, visually and kinesthetically back into that character and now you're in the saddle and can uh, rattle that off to the amazement of your director and producer. <laughs> right? Well, and let me just be clear. Um, it takes a month to become an expert at each of these dialects, but you get what you need from me in this class for all eight of them in a matter of eight weeks. Um, that's what we do. We, we go through these processes for, for each one. and then But you have to continue your homework and you have to keep working and and understand the method well enough to by the end of 12 months become an expert in all of those um and and it's not actually 12 months for 12 it's it's we start a new dialect each week so we're on a we're on a different stage of the learning process for three dialects at once Hmm. Um, the same way if you're learning the piano, you're not going to stick with the same piece for a month and not play anything else. You're going right. to be at this stage with this piece and at that stage with that piece. So yes. it, it's possible to to get a little bit more bang for your buck in a more compacted amount of time. Oh, no. I, but, I, yeah, I appreciate I'm sorry if I if that misrepresented at all. I wasn't trying to say it was going to take 12 months to learn 12 accents. Yeah. But, but <laughs> No, but by all means, I think putting 12 months in and becoming an expert at what you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is is imperative. Yeah. I mean, at least 12 months, right? I mean, how many years have we been studying? I, I still am in class in various ways. Yeah. You know, every time I have a guest speaker in my class, I learn from them. Pat Fraley came on the other day, you know, and I learn from him and I take his classes when I can. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't, I know, I don't know about you, but when I was in class, I think, there was this uh, aesthetic of, of, you know, we always stay in class, you know, we're never, yeah. never going to not be in class because that's how you remain open as an actor. Yeah. And, and aware of where things are because things shift. Yeah. And it's not just acting. I mean, CLE for, uh, for the legal profession, CME, the continued medical education, continued legal education, it's true for acting as well. Yeah. You know, it's just not a requirement for us to remain licensed. <laughs> so yes, no, you're 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 as you were saying, your class within every week people are learning new accents. Um yeah. it, you're just suggesting that while you can teach them the rules of chess in a couple of weeks, if they want to be a grandmaster, it is uh, it is incumbent upon them to put in the time to yes. get so good at those accents that they are they are Jedi with them. Yes, thank you for putting that so eloquently, my dear. Oh, I but believe me, I want to make sure I'm representing clearly, right? Because uh, because this this is really uh, powerful stuff, and I and I hope I hope my audience can appreciate 
how much care, dedication, and rigor has gone into what you teach and what you care about and how you do all of this stuff. Um, because it is that, that, it is that care, rigor, and passion that I see in anyone who is wildly successful uh, in the entertainment industry and has a length of career. There are people who might not have that dedication or passion who can sometimes be flashes in the pan, but they, they usually don't have much longevity in their career. The people who are consistently, reliably always performing and doing wonderful things tend to have this passion in some way. Um, and it's great that you that you found such a such a home for yourself with all this dialect stuff. I mean, I imagine that would all, was also sustaining you when things were maybe a little slower in your acting career. You had yeah, yeah, and and you know, I never thought of it like. I mean, it always came very organically. Certainly, it came of you know hosting a formal class and charging money came of needing the money. But but the teaching itself, I mean, I would be sitting in the lobby at, at William Morris reputedly for hours at a time. <laughs> <laughs> right. They are infamous for keeping people waiting. Waiting for auditions. And I'd hear my fellow actors and my colleagues stumbling around or, or getting upset as I used to when they don't tell you the night before that they're going to be asking for an Icelandic accent when you walk into that lobby don't you hate that they, it's yeah. always icelandic it always every time <laughs> i swear no but seriously and i used to be very indignant about it and say well give me three days and i could do this or you know let me know at least the night before if you're going to be calling me in for something that requires an accent but that's why i had to develop this system of just having them all in my head yeah you know because or and and it sounds daunting having them all in my head. But if you think of the number of songs you have in your head and you even tried to quantify that, you can't. Oh, well, yeah. So, I mean, and that's the, that's the other cool neurological thing that we can't remember prose, but we can remember song lyrics like an encyclopedia. And mm -hmm. that's why the troubadours would bring the news as a song as they would travel around Europe is because for whatever reason, our human brains can remember song lyrics when it's tied to a musical pattern better than if it's just isolated prose words, which goes back to your 14-step sing-song thing, is that you're getting it into that that song. Every every accent is now uh, the, the, the verse of a song to yes. get you back into that whole mindset. Yeah, and if you think about that, it's really not that much material. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. People can sing entire th musicals back without a problem. Um, my 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 three year old could do the entire um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Of course, of course. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely amazing and enlightening. Thank you so much for sharing all of your expertise and your passion. Right, I, I hope people are learning not only about your wonderful techniques for dialect and your insight into acting, but that your process, which has been lifelong, has been this commitment to um, uh, performing dialects, doing your, your theater shows, trying to get stuff out there that you were passionate about. Um, that, that, that's really what, what drives people to figure this out. I mean, I, I know for me, when I'm trying to do something, it's like the first time I did a voiceover gig, it was, I was dubbing some anime and I had to do a fight scene and it was my first time and I was not, not so focused at it. Like I, I couldn't figure out my coordination. And after we got done with it, I was really dissatisfied with it. And everyone else went on a lunch break and I like basically dragged the engineer back and said, please, 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 can I try it again? 
you know, like it's not good enough. <laughs> and he was like, okay, fine. And so, you know, do it again to get that, to get it to where you go. That's, that's it. Okay. I, I that's the best I can do right oh, now. Yeah. I'm going to have to you live know, with it's that. It's so funny. I know we're toward the end here, but I remember on Beekman's world, there was a moment where I had a full on diva breakdown, tears, <laughs> everything, because I had as Liza, my character on, right. on Beekman's world, I had a segment in the middle where I introduced Beekman and it was this heavy metaphor section where I'm like, the Frank Langella, who's a really swell fella that, you know, the, the, this of that. And, and it was my little monologue piece for each show. And it was the only thing as an actress, you know, that I had to oh, work boy. on. And, and so at one point, the director decided we were just going to shoot all eight episodes worth of my little speeches before lunch <sighs> because he didn't want to bother setting up any complicated new scenes. Right. And I lost it. And I was like, I'm not prepared. I, I do. I, I said, you're castrating me. <laughs> Freud would have a field day. <laughs> castrating me as an actress. And I was crying. I was like, this, and he's like, this is just TV. It's not rocket science. It's just TV. <laughs> I was like, but you don't understand. It's my craft. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's true. Uh, and and it's funny. In, in, in a previous interview with Zach Hanks, we talked about disabusing ourselves of this artistic snobbery um, in order to actually be practical and, and working in the industry. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you don't want to lose the caring Right. That you right. That you care about things being just so being this good being. I mean, I, I heard a story about uh, Stanley Kubrick basically stealing cameras from NASA, I believe, in order to shoot Barry Lyndon because he wanted to shoot everything by candlelight. And NASA had developed these ridiculously wide aperture lenses for their cameras to go into space. And he basically borrowed a couple of them and then shoehorned a camera, like a a film camera onto them so he could shoot Barry Lyndon by candlelight. Like, I mean, that's it's that thing where you're like, what's do whatever it takes. Right. Mm-hmm. Short of hurting yourself or hurting others, but do whatever it takes to get to get the results you want because you care that much about it. Um, right. And clearly your care comes through unalloyed. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much, Eliza. My it's pleasure. been absolutely wonderful talking with you. Um, and I appreciate everything you shared with us. Wonderful. All right. I will see you. Apparently, uh, I'll have another scene with you someday and we won't even know it. Yes, yes. Right. And so and, and anyone who's interested in your work, they should go to dialectmasterclass.com. That's right. And check it out. And I'll include uh, all the other links that you mentioned as well so people can find them easily. All right. Thanks a lot, Crispin. Thank you, Eliza. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Another huge thank you to Eliza for spending so much time with us. I'm very grateful to her for being so generous with her wisdom and so open about her personal experiences as an actress working in Hollywood. One of the things I really admire about Eliza is her unwavering commitment to telling stories she feels are important and her willingness to give a voice to those who are normally unheard. There are many actors I know who are facile with accents. They may even pride themselves on the number of accents they can perform at a moment's notice. However, it takes another level of commitment to focus on comprehensively documenting every English dialect on the planet. Having the determination to see such a project through is certainly admirable, 
but I never get the impression that Eliza has done all this work out of a sense of duty or obligation. Instead, she found something she was truly passionate about and was dogged in her pursuit of that passion. You can hear it in her enthusiasm for the Voice and Speech Conference, where after many years she finally found herself surrounded by people who were just as obsessed as she was with the joys of spoken language. My wish for all of my listeners is that you also find your passion and follow it with the same palpable excitement, whether that passion is for voice acting or for some other pursuit. I also admire Eliza's resourcefulness. She never waited for someone to tell her what to do. Instead, she forged her own path and developed her own methods for improving her artistry. Obviously, she learned a lot from the people she studied with, and she continues to expand her expertise even now. But she never deferred the responsibility for her own career to someone else. Nor did she wait for anyone to give her a stamp of approval before she pursued what she cared about. Necessity is the mother of invention, and if you truly have a burning need to succeed as a performer, you will find creative wellsprings inside yourself to achieve the results you want. If you're interested in taking class with Eliza, please don't hesitate to look up her workshops at www.dialectmasterclass.com. I highly recommend them. Thanks again for listening. It's been a pleasure sharing Eliza's insight with you, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Until then, best of luck in your voice acting endeavors, and take care. You've been listening to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. To get your free report revealing the five most common mistakes to avoid in voice acting, point your web browser to www.freevoiceactinggift.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.